Hello, friends, and welcome to the Caroline Glyke Show. Caroline here. I'm your host. On this podcast, we're going to be exploring a variety of topics from adventure and activism, climate change messaging, mountaineering, skiing, relationships, and how we can use sport to change the world. All righty. I am thrilled to have today's guest join us on the Caroline Glyke Show. Leah Evans is a pro skier, entrepreneur, and activist, and a fellow Patagonia athlete from Revelstoke, British Columbia. She's the founder of Girls Do Ski, which offers programs for women skiers to gain skills and build community. She's an ACMG hiking guide in the summer. And I got to know Leah through a trip we did a few years ago to the Monashies. I love experiencing nature and backcountry skiing with her because she has this amazing confidence and her leadership style is so calm and it really worked well with my hyperactivity. Together we broke trail up and down some of the most beautiful powder lines I've ever skied and I tried my best to keep up with her on the up and the down. You can tell she's really at home in this element and today we're going to chat about adventure, leadership, and activism. Leah, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thank you for having me. So where are you calling in from today? I'm calling from my home in Revelstoke, BC. So interior British Columbia for folks who, yeah, don't know Canada geography that well. Tell us a little bit more about where you live and your surroundings. Yeah, definitely. So Revelstoke is like this little tiny Mecca um, and it's surrounded by the Monashi mountain range, the Columbia river in the basin, and then the Selkirk mountains on the other side. So in the winter time, it's just this haven for skiers and for snow and for powder because we kind of have this, um, yeah, orographic lift that happens. In fact, it drops a bunch of snow in one range and then it'll get more snow in the next. Um, so we get this circle of good snow and uh, in summertime, it's also really beautiful. Yeah, it's a really beautiful place. It's like should be on every skier's bucket list. So where are you from originally? Uh, I'm originally from a little small town called Rosslyn, BC, and it's one of the oldest skiing places in British Columbia. And it's where, yeah, Nancy Green, our our Canadian hero, is from. How did you get into backcountry skiing and to doing what you're doing now? Yeah, so backcountry skiing, um, I think like everybody has a progression story. And mine started off is I was competing on the Canadian free ride tour um, back in the day and for one of the stops you actually had to hike up and then ski down and then you could either tour back to the resort or you could hike and I started going out actually like this is like full stories I did I signed up for the competition and I went with my dad to take me to the top of the venue because I'd never been there before and I was like you gotta show me dad and then he's like well we're gonna ski tour back we're not gonna hike And then we got up there and I was wearing like cotton t-shirts and like, he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just trying to do this competition. So um, yeah, that was like my introduction. And then I moved to Revelstoke and this is kind of like a backcountry haven. And a lot of friends are super into backcountry and it was just, yeah, the slow chunks of biting off different train and trying to keep up and then gaining more, um, skill sets and fitness and yeah, just exploring now. That's cool. Yeah. I always get frustrated actually when people ask me that question, cause I'm like, how am I supposed to summarize a decade and a half into like a 30 second answer? Because it can be, I think for a lot of us, the journey has been, you know, it takes a lot of years to gain the skills to do backcountry skiing. I wanted to talk a little bit about pillow skiing because it, it intrigues and terrifies me and you're incredible at it. So can you tell me what pillows are and why you like them? Yeah. So pillows are hands down my favorite thing to ski beyond like, I'd say like they're equal to big amounts of powder and trees. Um, but pillows, if you imagine rocks and they're like cascading, like almost like a waterfall, uh, envision winter and you just get a ton of snow and then they form into these like little mounds or pillows as we like to call them and they're basically staircases and you get to stand up top 
um, of them and you like the tips that I have for people who are looking to ski pillows is to kill your speed in the air. So you don't white room yourself to not have much speed. People always do this as like a classic one. They'll be like, I'm so excited. And then they'll like a jump, they'll come in so hot. And then you just like launch all the pillows, like bad. Yeah. Don't take speed. Um, and then just like, you're always mapping out like any kind of line, just choosing how you're going to create the fluidity in the air and on the ground. And the reason I really like it is, yeah, you can have this all planned out. Um, but it's like a little bit of a cowgirl ride. Like you're just trying to hold on sometimes. Yeah. I always find it's hard to avoid the flat landings because it seems like some of them, like the, the way the snow forms, especially in British Columbia, it is so like the, it's these dense layers, but it's so light and fluffy at the same time. And it's so, it sticks to things in a really different way than it does in Utah or like in the Western U S. So how do you avoid the flat landings? Well, it's where you have your skis mounted too. So I'm center mount my skis. Oh. Um, so like a lot of ski touring skis, you'll have them back mounted, but I'm on the center. So no matter where I land, I can kind of like rocker um, based on the flat landings. And it's like this weird balance because you need enough speed. So you're like skipping the ends of them. It's a real, it's a dance. It's like a technical part of skiing. It's so cool. And you live in such a great place to do that. And then you also have Rogers Pass, which is like a amazing place for ski mountaineering with so many and for alpine climbing and ridge, everything mountains. You have it right there in your backyard. Totally. How long have you been in Revelstoke? I've been here for 12 years now. Cool. And how do you think that that terrain and your experiences there have shaped you as a skier? Oh, huge. Uh, so growing up in Rossland, it's uh, more hills and it's not as technical, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Still like a lot of fun tree skiing and like lower subalpine skiing and moving to Revelstoke really stepped it up a notch where you have the alpine, you have the big objectives, etc. And I think just by being here and seeing what people are doing or what is possible, you really feed off of that. And yeah, you gain the skills and the education to be a safe mountain partner too. Yeah. And you have the glaciers too, right? There's quite a few glaciers on, in, on Rogers Pass. Yeah. But they're, they're also easy to avoid too. Yeah. 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 Take us through a few of your career highlights. Okay. Yeah. Uh, like, I think there's always this fluidity in your career where you set these goals and you meet them. And I think those are the moments where it creates the highlight. Um, but then uh, once you accomplish a lot of your goals, you kind of live in the state of like always having these little accomplishments. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, I'd say the tipping point for me was when I was 27 and I'd been working really hard in the ski industry and with girls do ski and that's a female ski camp I run um, and just trying to film and like get out there and get my name known. And it was kind of this moment where I was like, I let everything go. Uh, cause I was like, Oh, like I put a lot of effort in, maybe it's not working, but in turn now reflecting, I was like, Oh wow. I just made space for something new to come in. And when I was 27, I filmed the jumbo project with Patagonia. And that was like, beyond it was just like the that moment where you're like ah I understand why I did all these other things and worked so hard to put myself at this moment and that's when all the dreams started just rolling out and you transitioned from uh or like maybe you partnered a dream and a reality together and then they became this like beautiful thing in your actual life And from then on, it's just been a really cool momentum of meeting people, connecting with people, going to new places or staying in my backyard and just being able to facilitate these things and and make them happen. So that's I'd say like that was the tipping point of, yeah, of the big one, I'd say. Yeah, you've been in quite a few ski films 
And I wanted to talk more about Jumbo because that was such a big moment. And yeah, if you could give us some backstory on that and tell us kind of what that issue is all about. Definitely. So the Jumbo Valley, which is outside of Invermere, BC, they and outside of uh, Panorama Ski Resort, it's this beautiful valley that is a wildlife corridor specific to grizzlies. And for the last uh, 26 years, they've wanted to put a ski development and all four season resort in there. Uh, and this was an Italian developer named Alberto Berti. And basically, there's been resistance from the local First Nations, which is the Tanaha, and also just uh, Wild Site, which has been running uh, a nonprofit basically called Jumbo Wild to keep and preserve the wild space there. And it's just been this massive feud and things will get to a certain landmark and then they'll regress. And it's just been this trial and tribulation. And then as of like this year, uh, it's really, really exciting that it got named as an indigenous protected area. And the Tanaha now are the gatekeepers of Jumbo. So this is one of those success stories where it all like it's protected. Uh, and it's also really cool because this is one of the first indigenous protected areas. So now they'll have ownership on how to run it, who is allowed in, how they're going to protect the spirit of the grizzly bear, that which is the Kwatmak in their native language. So on so many fronts, it, yeah, it's just one of those environmental success stories of keep on going and community is everything and just fighting for those wild spaces. How long have you been involved working? Yeah, that? so uh, indirectly, like when I was a youth, my parents were really, uh, my dad's like loves grizzly bears, etc. And has, they took, my parents took us up there and they're like, this is the area, like you guys need to see this so you can feel it and you can know like what's out here so you can protect it. So from a youth, like I've always been involved in the, the dinner conversations and just having it as a special place. Um, and then probably seven years ago, I had the opportunity to get more involved. And it just seemed like such an amazing bridge because here's the space that was in my DNA from childhood and just wanting, yeah, wanting to protect it. And I have been volunteering with WildSight since that and then um now as well into the future I'll, I'll continue volunteering with them were you ever afraid of the grizzlies well, well so it's really interesting because some places you go to in bc you'll just have this feeling and it's you know that they're there and you really have to be conscious of it so in Jumbo, though, that's one of the places where you're like, oh, wow, there's there's grizzlies here. And you do your best to mitigate it. So you always do like a bear hang and you will carry bear spray, etc. Some other places you'll go and you're like, oh, you just don't feel the same um, vibe. And I think when you spend a lot of time outside, you start to tune into nature and you're like, something's up here. Like, I think we just have to be a little bit more on guard. But grizzlies, like that's their home for sure. I mean, you don't have to worry about it as much in the winter as in the fall or the spring, right? Because they're yeah, they hibernating. Hibern yeah. Hibernate. And then um, in the spring, like I think even right now is a time when they build dens inside of mountain caves. So usually one of their dens will be on a self-facing slope. So it melts out faster. Mm -hmm. And in the summertime, you can actually hike to a lot of them. You'll see like... Uh, this is not specific to Jumbo, but you'll see a mountain face and you'll see this like massive tunnel that almost looks like a mine and it's a grizzly den. Cool. And yeah, they're very strategic about how they're building their houses too. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen as many grizzlies as when we did a summer road trip through, um, we went through BC to the Bugaboos and then we went up to to Banff and around the ice fields parkway. And we saw so many grizzlies. It was awesome, but it is like definitely a different kind of risk management than we're used to here in Utah. 
Um, when you were growing up, how old were you when your parents took you to Jumbo? I must have been. So my parents, like we, I'm always like, why am I who I am? And it's a lot to do with my parents of how we traveled. And they were like obsessed with forestry campsites. So every weekend we'd go to a new forestry campsite and like learn how to ride bikes on a gravel road or like a, like we'd just be outside the whole time. And Jumbo, I think I was probably around nine when I went. Um, And my brother's five years younger than me. So I specifically remember just like the meadows because we went in the fall and the larches turned like this beautiful, crisp yellow. And I just remember seeing the reflection in the glacier lakes with the larches. And just one of those moments that is like just sketched in your mind. Did you have any awkward moments as you were like a preteen or a teen being out in the wilderness with your family? Like with like for me, it was really awkward when my dad was teaching me how to poop in the woods when I was like 10 years old on a backpacking trip. So did you have anything like that? Well, we just did so much of it. Like I just remember being like torn away from my friend group. They'd be having like birthday parties and like all this cool stuff and I'd be like I just want to go to the birthday party and then now in retrospect I'm like wow I'm so stoked that they had their own agenda and took us along like one of the the things that we did is my parents took two months off work and my dad used to be a mechanic so he retrofitted a 70s RV and we drove it all the way from our hometown to Alaska. And we did like these week-long backpacking trips in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and we each got to pick like pick a, an element of history and explore it and go to that spot and be like, be, yeah, tell everybody why we wanted to go to that spot. So yeah, we did a, we did a lot of, uh, we're there like their original adventure parents, I guess. That's really cool. That's, it sounds like, and you have one brother or do you have other siblings as well? I just have one younger brother. One younger, so you're the oldest. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Yeah. I was like three out of four with three, with three brothers. So I was always a little bit rough when we were on those long family road trips where we would just be like fighting so much in the back of the car. But again, it's like those things when you're a kid that you hate, you know, that you really despise, those end up being the best things that really form you as an adult. And so I'm really grateful now for my brothers and for my parents for taking us on some of those cool adventures as well. With Jumbo, when did you realize the importance of Indigenous leadership when it came to the final outcome and the land management and the land protection? Yeah, I think there's a lot of pieces going on beyond me within that too. Um, But I think it's just part of reconciliation. And I know here in Canada, we are trying to have some form of reconciliation and protect more uh, indigenous space. And I think it's just important to like this within my hiking guiding work, I learn a lot about plants from two different perspectives. I learn from a first nations use and then also conventional use. And I think within Jumbo, it's really important just to respect the spirit that lives there. And that's the Kwatmak. And that was one thing I was really impressed with in the campaign of moving it forward is how the bears were an essential part and the environment. Like a lot of times we'll be like, save this place, but there's people already living there. And then to highlight those people who don't have human voices and bring them along in the campaign, I think is really important. And I was really impressed with that, with Jumbo. How can we get more skiers and outdoor community people to have that kind of recognition of the value of land, not just for recreation, but for wildlife and for the indigenous people who've lived there? Like, how can we... I guess, like, how do you see this growing and becoming more normalized in the rest of the snow and outdoor world? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, like, honestly, it's so easy now just to do a Google search and be like, okay, I'm going to this place, like, whose traditional territory was this? Uh, And that's one thing 
beyond outdoor space, when I do a Patagonia talk and stuff, I'm just trying to acknowledge who was here before me and who, yeah, who has had a hand in cultivating this land or protecting it or, um, yeah, there's a lot of things within that sentence, but yeah, I think this mindfulness needs to start happening within the outdoor space. Uh, I had an interview actually with powder magazine about the announcement of jumbo and they were like, what are you going to do now? Are you going to go skiing there? And I was like, no, I'm going to wait till the Tanaha has a plan and I'm introduced onto their land and I'm allowed to go to that land. Um, I think with skiing and snowboarding, we have this voyager perspective where we can go and we can conquer any peak and we can do anything we want. And I think maybe it's now important for us to take a step back and just think about how we're recreating, why we're recreating and the places that we're doing it on. So I think it's a bigger question. And I think having uh, personal consultants or allies with this or friends is really important. Um, I know we have a mutual friend named Len who runs native outdoors and anytime that I'm in the States, I'll just send him a text and be like, hey, I'm doing this presentation at the Patagonia Boston store. Um, can you give me any insight or connections to whose land this originally was? Uh, and that's really cool, too, also because it sparks this interest in this knowing. And you're basically gathering stories from the landscape. And then you're able to weave your own story upon that landscape. And I think it just increases increases your depth and your knowledge of of place. Yeah, Len was just on the show two episodes ago. So this is really cool for you to, because one of the questions that I had asked Len is, what does authentic allyship look like? And he was like, it has to be this ongoing dialogue. It can't just be a one-time performative thing where you do a land acknowledgement once, but you're not having these ongoing conversations. And so I really liked what you just said about continuing that conversation and really fostering these friendships and this ongoing dialogue because it needs to, it can't just be a one-time conversation. Like it needs to keep happening and we need to keep being proactive about coming to the table and, and cultivating those relationships. And I think, I think that speaks to diversity as well. Like um, if you look at our sports you don't see a lot of diversity. And I think it's about welcoming people in and letting them know that there's a space for them within the sport and within your friendship circle too. Uh, and I think with those connections and just understanding each other will grow into something that you may not even know what it will grow into, but having that bond is really important. Yeah. And it's so important to creating, you know, a more resilient climate and environmental movements because having more diverse voices can really help us see our blind spots and having those honest conversations with people where they're not calling you out or like it's not this aggressive but it's um like how we do with our siblings you know like just making sure to hold people accountable but when we can do it in a friendly way like I think that that's much better than when it gets to like a tipping point and then it becomes sort of disastrous so well what you just said I loved about also inviting people in and creating this culture of inclusivity and so with that I wanted to ask you about what you do with Girls Do Ski if you could tell tell me a little mm -hmm. bit about that. Yeah, so I started Girls Do Ski, which is a female ski camp. I started it 12 years ago, which is mind-blowing. Um, when I was 18 and riding my bike around, like I would go to university in the fall, and then I'd take the winter off and do Girls Do Ski and then also compete with skiing. So in the fall, I'd go to university, stack up my courses because I only had a short time. And then I was learning how to run a business at the same time. So during that time period, I was just bumping around the streets, going to classes and asking professors and going to free business management courses and finally came up with this structure. And it's just grown for the last 12 years. We just um, did resort camps in the past and now we've done a plethora of backcountry camps. So we do everywhere from intro to ski touring 
to advanced um, and a guides training course. Oh, you have guides training now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, tell me more about why you think it's important to have these spaces. I think it's super important because the way that I, my personal philosophy about it is I like integration, but I also like creating space. And I think with Girls Do Ski is you can go to a place where you feel safe, ask questions, learn in a non-judgmental environment and gain skills and capacity and confidence. And you can go back out and you'll be challenged in different situations with different people but you know that you spent some time cultivating those things in that space. And I think if we don't have those spaces where we don't feel judged or we don't learn or challenge ourselves, then we just keep on acting the same way. And maybe we don't see, like you said, those blind spots. Mm -hmm. So I think it's within skiing, like I, it's 85% mental. And a lot of the ladies that we have who come I'm like, wow, you actually don't even understand how good you are, but your mind holds you back. So it's just working on these little things physically that have a mental attachment and sewing them together that will create this, um, how do you say, like movement or like you'll come off the plateau basically. And when I think when you progress then or come off the plateau, like I just said, then you gain confidence. Yeah. You know, it's really funny because my idea about like these women's specific camps, it's really come full circle because growing up in a family that was dominated by men, I was like, I don't need girls only. Like I want to be with the guys. And, and I didn't really appreciate until I got older, the value of the space, the space that you're creating and the value of those spaces. And I remember like I went to the American Alpine Club Craig and Classic and took a traditional climbing, trad climbing anchor building clinic. And it was my friend and I, and there was a bunch of dudes. We were building an anchor and like trying to pick out the right cam. And we're like, oh, that one's too big. And the guy was like, that's what she said. And it was just like not that big of a deal, but just one of those things that kind of makes you feel sort of grimy and it just makes you feel like not really welcome. And I was just sort of annoying. And anyway, as I've gotten older now, I really see that there's such a huge value in what you're creating. And I love what you said about having these. I think it's important sometimes to have those spaces where for me as a woman, there's been always so many different voices in my head, like telling me how I should be and what I should be and how I should think. And so to have a space where I can learn to listen to my own gut, like that's the most valuable thing. So I loved what you just said too about there'd be like that disconnect, like a girl, a a woman in your camp would be really talented, but had some mental barrier. So can you give us any more clues about how we can get through those mental barriers to have more confidence on skis and -hmm. in other areas of life? Yeah, I think it's about progression. So you don't want to go and you hit the cliff, but you have no idea how to land, you know? So I think it's what I try and build up is progressions with physical drills. Um, So let's say our like goal right now is the cliff drop. It's like doing little jumps and like learning how to like get your body in the air, where your chin should be, how your arms should be positioned. And then I take you through like the visualization and a rapid visualization, like hyperspeed and getting your mind accustomed to like the speed. So I've seen this so many times where people are like, I'm just going to do it. And that is also an awesome attitude. Um, but then they'll get on the jump and they'll be like, Wah! like totally freaked out or their hands will go like full spaghetti arm, etc. cetera. Uh, so I think it's just, yeah, this combination of things and then getting to the, the top of something and looking at it and going through the process and being like, I can do this. Because a lot of times, and this is like a metaphor for life, we'll get to the edge of the cliff and you chicken out or something holds you back or you cut your speed, which all you need in that moment is momentum. So I think, yeah, getting through the wave of the feelings, the skills, et cetera, is definitely something that I suggest and we teach at Girls Do Ski. 
And I'm a very like intuitive feeling based learner and I can see where people are blocked. I'm like, all right, like we need to take it back a step um, or we, we can continue further. It's uh, yeah, it's really cool. I love, I love working with people in that spot. It seems you've really stepped into your own and you're in such an amazing leadership position. And yet you also have this very beautiful way of navigating with inner hearing and intuition and empathy. And can you talk more about how those characteristics that we typically associate with the feminine, how they're also really important for leadership? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, uh, if you can notice details um, or check in with people and have that empathetic part of your business or of yourself, then you're going to be able to take people and motivate them and put them into positions or into situations where they'll fully shine. And I think a lot of times we miss that step and then you get thrown into something or leadership doesn't even acknowledge that, or the way you speak, the language you use, et cetera, it doesn't really help build confidence or motivation or even positivity. Uh, and I think this is, yeah, I'm just trying to support the people in my circle the best I can. And then I think overall, I'm just so curious of how do you make the world a better place too? Yeah. Right. How do you notice, like, what cues do you look for when you're trying to like get on the same level as people? Yeah. I think everybody likes to talk about themselves. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just asking them questions, like there's certain things that get closer to the heart. So maybe start with like the shoulder stuff, you know, like the, the stuff that weighs a lot of like how much or like, where do you work? Like that kind of stuff. And then like work your way in. Like once you get safer and closer to the heart it's like oh yeah like do you have a partner or do you have kids do you have a pet like people love sharing those stories and then I think you can collect something and create a rapport with someone so they feel safe yeah that emotional intelligence you have it's really one of your strongest suits it's something I really admire about you and you're so accomplished on so many different levels, like with your athletics and with your business and activism. Have you had um, any big failures or missteps or mistakes that you've, I mean, if we all have had, but can you tell us like a failure or a mistake that you've made along the way and what you learned from it? Yeah. Um, maybe speaking to choices might be better. Yeah. Um, just because I feel like everything you do acquires to like, you do every, all these little things and then you get to this moment and you're like, Oh, that's why I did this. That's what maybe I made that mistake or learned that. And it puts you in this position where you can deal with the current situation. But I think I've had to make some really hard choices along the way. Um, and I want to speak, I'm also very privileged. I understand this as well. Um, but it, it comes with, yeah, making life choices of like, pursuing when I was 18 that was a huge decision for myself because I had a full ride field hockey scholarship for four years and I just had this burning passion to choose skiing and create girls to ski and just follow it with my whole heart and I think there's been these moments where yeah maybe skiing or this lifestyle doesn't seem like the the best conventional way or use of your time, etc. But I just had this massive feeling that if I didn't do it, I would be making the mistake of not following my heart. And yeah, I think I see now a lot of people who get clouded. Um, and there's a lot of factors that go on with that, but their heart and their message from their heart is so buried that they, they don't even know what they want to do anymore. They're, or they're very lost in life. And I think yeah, those have been the hardest decisions to make. And yeah, it's, I can sympathize with people for making hard choices. Have you had any um, pillow landings that have gone awry and any, or any injuries? Oh yeah. So there's like another example. I've made some bad choices on skis for sure. Let, let's hear about them. Give us, give um, us, tell us one or two of them. Well, I think this is just part of your like 
evolving mountain craft. And I can remember ski touring and I was like, oh, like we should go there to me and my brother. And we got on top and like we just kept on going on this ridge line. And we're both like, oh my God, this is like beyond sketchy. Don't tell anyone we went here. <laughs> like, no, like this is really bad. And we're like, well, there's only one way off of this knife edge ridge and you have to go down. Like it could avalanche, it could do all these things. And before my brother dropped in, cause he went first, he went, he looked back and he was like, I love you. <laughs> he dropped in. <sighs> and I was like, oh yeah, we should not be here. <laughs> Wait, how old were you? Yeah, exactly. I was like 24 probably. So yeah, definitely like in the midst of learning the mountain craft with no hard um, repercussions. Right. And you've also had a close encounter with an avalanche yourself. Do you want to talk about that? You don't have to. Yeah. No, that's all good. Um, I think I've gone through like the cycle with it now too. So it's fine to share. Um, I think I've had two close calls. Um, one was in a Red Bull cold rush competition and the earth, like the snow just gave out from underneath my feet and I got sucked back off, um, two massive cliffs and only sprained my MCL. So that was a, a near death one. And the tie between these two events is I had the same filmer at that time. And then in the avalanche I was filming and I hit a pocket, a loaded pocket that we talked about earlier in the day and just got comfortable with the slope. And then I hit it and the same um, filmer was in the, the helicopter filming and yeah, I was fine. I was just buried, but it was like uh, a loss of, yeah, of a life, not, not a loss of life, but a, a stage of life. It really like transitioned me into um a different equation and that equation being before it was like me plus me equals me. And now I think I really understand like there's a lot of people that love me and I love them. And by making certain choices, like I'm also affecting them too. That's great. How long were you buried for then in that second avalanche? I wasn't buried for that long. Like I was just up to my hips. So it probably took them like 15 minutes to unbury me, but I was like stuck. Like it's crazy. It was just like cement and yeah, it just, it just rattled me in a lot of different ways. So when you were caught, were you like swimming or doing anything to try to stay on top? So you didn't get buried. Yeah. And I was trying to ski out of it. Um, but it all happened so fast. Like you have these cues and you know what you should do, but all of a sudden, like you're like, I thought people were yelling at me, but it was like my radio on my backpack. Like they're letting me know that they saw me. Wow. And you never use your pull straps now, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I cut them fully off. I think about you all the time whenever I'm about to jump in. Cause when we were on that trip in the Monashi, as you know, you were like, I'm not, I don't, you didn't have your pulse jobs. You never use them. And so if I don't have my lakey ones that are detachable, like, and I'm skiing an avalanche, a slope that could avalanche, I always ski without them. And that's oh, nice. because of you. Yeah. yeah cool. You've inspired me in many ways. Cool. Yeah. Have you had any other injuries besides the strain MCL? Um, just like, funny back stuff and like I just try and stay on top of things too yeah um, I work with a really good um, functional movement trainer and that's been really good for staying functioning <laughs> absolutely yeah that's great so what does your day-to-day look like as a pro skier because for me it's always hard to describe to people like what it is I actually do because every day for me is so different but I wanted to hear from you what does it look like Yeah. So I can also relate to that question because it is very different. Um, I'd say generally you're like (laughs) non-committal, which is a life trait that will like have to be resolved later in the future because you're like waiting for like who's going to go with you. And then more like the big thing is like what conditions are like, Um, because you never want to book things and be like locked into them and and then be like, oh, wow, it's dumping. And I'm not at this, like, you didn't position yourself well. So it's kind of like a really, yeah, that dictates your schedule a lot. Um, but now with Girls Do Ski events, I like know that I'll be at certain events and I have that locked off. 
And one other thing that I've really tried to um, incorporate in my daily life is meditation. Just because our lifestyles have zero routine and I travel a lot. Um, yeah, every morning I wake up and I do a meditation now. And I've done that for almost about a year. Oh, come May. How long and, do you meditate for? Like sometimes five minutes, 10 minutes. Um, but yeah, I missed one day and I was like, why do I feel so weird? And I was like, oh, wow, like I missed it. Um, so now that's just like a routine. I'll wake up and I'll do that. And I don't look at my phone or any media until after that period. And I think that's just given me like the one routine in my entire life. And then within winter, like, yeah, you're just chasing the snow. Yeah. So when you're meditating, are you doing a self-guided meditation or are you using an app or how do you know what to do? Yeah. So I've experienced in like, I've been to a lot of different workshops and like free things. And like, I love just exploring and for the mental feed of things. And I took a theta healing course and theta is a brainwave. So it's a certain state. And every morning I do that theta uh, meditation where you ground yourself and then you go up to your highest and then you ground yourself back again. And that's just a nice way to, to be here. And then also to be in your highest self. And it works really well for me. And it took me a really long time of exploring to find something that was working. Cool. Yeah. I'm going to have to, I like that advice about not checking your phone because for me, I just like wake up instinctually, grab my phone and then I get sucked into the spiral and then working with so many different sponsors in different time zones. I'll get like this, this year, this email from Europe that came through in the middle of the night with like a to-do list of things. And then East coast people have like already started emailing me and before, and then like my day can go really long because I'm also working with people on the West coast. So with all the different time zones, I feel like I'm always working and I feel like I'm never going to get it all done. And it can be really overwhelming and difficult to manage at times because the other part of it is that there's not like a manager or an office or any structure. Like it's just me here at my office trying to figure out these things. And there are some people I work with, but a lot of it is pretty solitary. So that can be kind of hard for me sometimes. Totally. I, I have moments like that too. I have really heavy office seasons like in the fall and then kind of here in the spring and I'll just be like, I need to go like to the coffee shop and just say hi to someone like and have a real conversation. Yeah. Do you live alone? Um, no, I live with my partner too. Okay, cool. Yes. Nice. Yeah. But still you, I don't know, you see each other a lot. So it's really nice to, yeah, just like have that engagement on like, and we live in a small town too. So it's like, you get ideas and connections from other people too. Totally. Yeah. It was really bad when I lived by myself because some days I would just be in the grind so much that I wouldn't like see any other human for 24 hours. And I would just need to go to the grocery store just to like, I mean, buy like a drink or something so that I could at least talk to someone else in real life because the office hours, I think that's the one thing that people maybe don't realize. Like, like they think that we just get to go ski, but for every ski trip we get to go on, there's like so many emails and like getting the, you know, pushing the idea through. And then just, there's so much office work to get to that point. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's hard to show that part of it, but it is as I've gotten older and I'm sure the same for you as your business has grown, it becomes more and more like a real job every day. And it's less like what I thought I was signing up for when I started when I was 18. <laughs> Yeah. And I think it's changed so much. Like when you were, you or me or were 18, like you were trying to film a TGR or like that kind of stuff. And like social media wasn't even in the game. Yeah. And now I think we're creating our own content and we have the power to create whatever we want. Uh, but that also like puts you, I think before it maybe it was a little bit more relaxed and yeah. You know, my first year we still shot, it was still like film cameras. So you'd have to wait for the film to be developed before you could look at the shots. <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> I kind of miss that now that now we have, I mean, it's, it's really cool. Like social media has, has a huge power and I'm really grateful to it, but it also creates like a lot of stress and burden sometimes that it's hard to really, um, 
unplug. But you're good at that airplane mode. <laughs> yeah. And I just have media free days now. So I'll go out skiing with people I know who don't like photos and they're not into it. And I'm like, sweet. I'll just, and I, I like schedule those in because otherwise, like, you're skiing a line and like now you're so conditioned, you're like, I got to stop halfway through so I can get a photo. Yeah. And yeah. so you break your consistency or your fluidity a lot. Yeah, it really also just takes you out of the moment when you pick up your phone out of your pocket and then you're like all of a sudden seeing all the dings of notifications. And for me, I'm just like so ADHD, it just like spirals. And the next thing I don't even know what I got my phone out for. But um, I for me, like a few years ago, I started trail running and trail running became my space where I would just run and not take photos. Like maybe I would stop one time and take a selfie, but that would be it. And I find more and more it's important for me to have those spaces where I can just be out in nature and I don't have to create. And I feel like that's where I always get my best ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's like then transitioned a lot into my summer stuff and like my connection to nature and like I'm hiking guiding. So I'm showing people and I'm telling them stories of the landscape and I'm learning a lot because I have to tell them the stories uh, but I'm noticing all the different transitions of the plants, the way the wind's blowing, like if there's animals in the, the area. And I think those moments really help me tune back in too. Tell us, yeah, I'd love to hear more about your summer work too. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I became a hiking guide. My One of my best friends, um, she's awesome. And she was a hiking guide. And I was like, how can I hang out more with you in the summer? And she's like, oh, you should just become a hiking guide. Um, And I was like, oh, that seems cool. Like, I didn't really think too much of it. And then we went on, we worked for Outward Bound. And we did an 18-day backpacking trip with 12 kids. Whoa. Yeah. That's wild. And then we took them through, yeah, this, like, whole journey. And we managed their, like, little tiny, like, community and their ecosystems and their emotions and, like, the adventure, et cetera. and yeah, just saw a lot, did a lot. Like one of the highlights for that is it was after the big floods had come um, near Canmore. And so all the riverbeds were just ground up. They basically were churned. So there was these massive riverbeds and they were all fossils. Mm. Like you, we spent like hours upon hours, like looking at fossils and my backpack got so heavy. Cause I was just like carrying around these like fossils. Um, and yeah, so from there, it just like sparked this like adventure based with education, based with teaching and like skiing is very hard on your body at points. And then it like, you can mountain bike, et cetera, um, or running. Um, but I just found like you weren't actually like slowing down at all. And then doing the hiking work. Uh, yeah, I just, I started to slow down to recognize things and also gain more skills, um, with navigation and train selection. Um, yeah, so I went through the ACMG has a, uh, program where you can become an assistant hiking guide and then you do an eight day backpacking trip, which I just did this fall. Um, and then you go for your full guide and it was like near survival because, it was in September and it was so cold. Like I was wearing one of my Patagonia ski jackets, like rain jacket. I wore that the entire time and rain pants and didn't take them off like the whole time. Wow. And so how it would work is every day you're in an Alpine environment to the trees and you'd write out your route plan in advance. So you'd visualize where you're going to go, like what things look like. Um, and then you'd have a GPS, but you were advised not to use it as much. Wow. That's really Um, cool. Yeah. Like halfway through the day, they'd be like, it's your turn, your lead. And then maybe you were somewhere where like, cause you didn't start off. um, You'd be in a spot where you're like, wow, like I have no idea where I am. Cause this is not on my route plan. Um, But then you go back to all your skills, like map and compass if needed. And then, yeah, you're, you're guiding people to down train that you've never seen. So 
it was like, it was awesome. It sounds like it would translate really well into the work you do in the winter as well, because that kind of train, like that intimate knowledge of the terrain in the summer can be such an asset as you're planning tours in the winter. Oh, for sure. And I think like this is huge too, because um, as a female, I think I I read a stat somewhere and like I was like, oh, wow, I'm that person. But I was not as good with maps or compasses, etc. And the way that I work with skiing is like I'm very visual. I'll take a picture on my phone and when I'm on top, I'll reference that photo. With hiking, you have to use the map. Yeah. <laughs> and this exam. So I like it was really cool for my skill set. I was like empowered to learn and it's so cool when you're like, you take a chance and you're like, okay, I'm going to go left up here. This better connect. And you get to the top and you're like, yes. So yeah, it was like, it was a, a cool, um, yeah, it was a, a cool moment for sure. I really want to go hiking with you in the summer. It sounds mm-hmm. so fun. Yeah. Yeah. Like traverses, like, I think it's just so cool how you can link things together. And right now I'm doing a lot of research on um, historical First Nation trails. And I was like, wow, that would be so cool to do a massive hiking trip along these trails. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds awesome. What does your work with Patagonia look like? Like, what do you do as an ambassador? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as an ambassador, um, probably much like you too, um, we do a lot of photo shoots. And then uh, if you get the opportunity, sometimes you'll put in a proposal and then you'll get a film that gets approved. And then you really concentrate on, it might be a film more photos I should back up there, but you really concentrate on those times um, and producing and you go out into nature and you capture, you ski and are filming, et cetera. Um, And then another part of our job is to take that, what we've learned and gathered from being in this world into the Patagonia stores. And we've got, yeah. Um, activist tours and we also have speaking tours and stuff so it's very varied but it's really I don't know I really appreciate it to connect with yeah people what's your favorite part of the work yeah um I love making beautiful images I think that's like a really cool part um and then I'd say equally I like the speaking events yeah yeah I was going to say for me, I think I really enjoy the product part of it. Yeah. Because like a part, a big part of our job too is testing samples and prototypes and working with designers. And so I think that that part is really fun as well because it's really cool when you get to see something that you had recommended be on like the next wave of the design, like to see an idea you had be implemented. I, I love to see the progression of the product as well. Totally. I, yeah, I totally agree with you on that. And it's been cool. Like through the past, like now I'm like, Oh, that's Caroline's outfit. And I'm like, this is my outfit. Like, cause we have very specific needs and it's been cool to see them take the information that we're giving them on colors or fabrics or like we just use our stuff so hard too. And then they're so receptive and they're like, Oh, look, we made this change or like, how do you like this? And I think they're outstanding with that. Yeah. And also it's been really cool to see the progression of the sustainability uh, of the, of the fabrics because like Gore-Tex and all these things, they all have an impact, but to see that Patagonia is really pushed for a hundred percent recycled Gore and then to make products that are easier to repair and easier to recycle. Like that's been a really cool progression to see as well. Mm -hmm. And I think socially too, like I think I have been for so many years because I live in a wetter climate, like 100% like GoPro or sorry, Gore-Tex. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They they go hand in hand sometimes. Yeah, 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 (laughs) totally. Um, But yeah, 100% Gore-Tex. And now I actually wore H2NO ski pants the entire year. Wow. Yeah. And I think that was like such a mind shift for me Yeah, and retraining myself on like different sustainability or products, et cetera, and being more open where I think we've been so stuck in certain ways that it's been fun to, to, yeah, just try it out. What pant was that? 
That's the snow drifter pant. The snow drifter. Okay. And that's coming out in fall, right? Or is that one available? It's already out. It's already out. Okay, cool. It's the um, bibs. This, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I love that pant. Yeah. Cool. So you were able to be, and you were able to stay, you didn't get too saturated in those no. wet BC powder storms. Yeah, no, I was fine. And um, I went to Japan this year as well. And I was fine there as well. So uh, yeah, it was super like, I did a review at the end and I was like, wow, I only wore my Gore-Tex pants once. Yeah, that fabric is really incredible. And so do you know, like, I mean, the problem with a lot of those waterproof treatments is that they're pretty hard on the environment, right? And so the H2NO, they're able to make it water resistant, pretty waterproof, actually. I think it's a pretty high waterproofing standard with less toxic chemicals. Yeah. And even if you do get a little bit wet or damp, I found I dried out really fast. Yeah. It's so. really incredible. Cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you really stoked on right now in the world of environmental activism? Like what is giving you hope and lighting you up and giving you motivation? Yeah. So I think we were texting before and um, I'm getting like really deep into like pollinators, um, but specifically with pollinators, how to um, become a native seed collector. Mm. And this got me like so jazzed because when I'm out in the mountains, I see from spring to fall. So I really get to see the life cycle of a plant and I get to understand it. And it's like a friend. You're like, oh, like, this is, yeah, I, maybe I won't use that analogy, but you, you really get to know the, the plant. And for example, like silky lupins are found a lot in the alpine. And this year it's like my, I'm so dedicated and I've read all the requirements, et cetera. Um, but I want to harvest um, silky lupin and it's basically like a pea pod and it will dry out in the fall and it has these little tiny seeds And then what you can do is you can collect those, you dry them, and then you send them into a seed bank. And what they're doing is making um, different mixes for pollinators. Uh, And you can buy them or they'll keep them in the seed library. So then down the road, you can just increase, increase pollinator habitat. And do they give people then specific instructions on where to put those seeds? Yeah, totally. There's like how many hours it took you and the like step by step, etc. So I have it on my desktop of my computer. And I've been like referencing it being like, okay, like this plant, I got to like, I've just been studying the plants because there's some that I don't know, which is, yeah, really cool. Well, what a cool way to have a more intimate experience with nature and to also do something that's really important for insect health. Because this summer, I think I told you we're starting to keep bees, but these are European honeybees. And I think beekeeping is just sort of a gateway to becoming more aware of insects and to really start to appreciate the importance of native pollinators and native bees as well, which they really need those native plants to exist because some of them can only exist when they have those native plants present, those native flowers. So it's a really cool symbiotic relationship. Yeah. I know. And there's like a a lot of um, nonprofits that are collecting too. So um, I've just been researching and I have an order in for a bunch of native plants. And it's interesting because they take two years. So you have to be like patient and like thoughtful and you're like garden flattening. And yeah, I just, I have been really enjoying like the slow movement and like looking and having time and space to look into certain things. Well, and I love that it's a positive way to help the environment and to help the world because it seems like the, like a lot of the messaging for people about how to become more involved as an activist is like show up at a march or a rally or buy a reusable water bottle, or it's like these really shallow ways. And I love that that your way, like what you're doing is like so much more in depth and it's really cool. So what are other things that people can do like outside the box ideas to help the environment or to become activists? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like even right now, I think it's like stretching us. Like I think home gardens are really interesting. And if you've got time um, just to spend time, like looking at different systems. So Right now I've used every piece of recycling in my house because I've done like a bunch of new starts. So I've used everything like toilet paper rolls, like 
any kind of like carton I've like cut it up and I've made like any kind of pot I can because I've been up planting my my seedlings now um and then in the backyard I'm gonna do like a permaculture garden so um yeah just keeping everything in the ground and learning how to reuse so I'm gonna use a bunch of cardboard wood chips from a local friend and I'm just using the things that already exist in the world um and I think that's just one way like right now there is things in our power that we can do it feels like everything might be a little bit um beyond us at this moment but just thinking about how you can start life sustain life etc and then I think thinking bigger than that too um reaching out to your community so is there something that you're interested in maybe you get really interested in growing food or um, you're interested in bear safety or protecting a, a watershed, et cetera. There's tons of environmental organizations. And then another resource that we have via Patagonia for us too is Patagonia Action Works. And they can link you up with the NGO that's in your area. Um, so if you're like, I've always been curious about wolves, um, there might be an NGO that's located near you and yeah just volunteering your time or just being a body in that space absorbing what's going on I think is really we all need to be stewards of this earth right now and continue so whatever you can learn and teach and spread I think is very valuable great advice okay I wanted to ask you now a couple fun rapid fire questions so First of all, what is your favorite TV show? Or do you have one? Do you watch TV? Um, I binge watch. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so I actually don't watch TV. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got really sick uh, last two winters ago, and I started watching Riverdale. Okay. It's like a Netflix series. It's so bad. Um, so, yeah, that's I'd say that's like the TV show that I have been watching. Um, yeah. Cool. I think it's okay to have like the, I mean, for a long time I didn't watch TV, but for me, it's an important way to learn to like shut my mind off and de-stress. It's good if you're sick or injured too. Okay. Favorite book or book your, or favorite book right now. It can be either one. Yeah. So I love reading. I usually, um, put books over TV. Um, I, yeah, I'm in like a light reading phase right now. Cause I always find you need one to get back in um I'm reading the Rosie project and that's just yeah super fun little love story oh um, I love it okay and then I just finished reading the dove keepers by Alice Hoffman and it was excellent okay I'll check those out and link to them in the show notes favorite color blue blue like what kind of blue uh I don't or know all kinds. Just, yeah like just a, like all kinds okay sky blue turquoise yeah like this blue okay it's kind of like a gray. Is that a gray blue? Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. Like a dolomite blue. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. Favorite food. Hmm. Food. Uh, it's so funny. I like feel like pizza will always be your answer because you can do anything. It's um, very versatile. Yeah. And just like thin crust pizza, like after a long day of skiing. So good. So good. And it's just so portable too. You know, it's just so versatile. It can be a great delivery vessel for a lot of different things. Totally. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 I'm back in that. I'm with you on the pizza. Are you a morning person or a night owl? I'm like a seven to 11 kind of gal. Hmm. Okay. So middle of the road. And piece of advice you'd give to your younger self piece of advice um yeah I would just like say like just make a decision and go for it and spend less time like thinking about it um yeah great advice okay what is the best way for me to continue following your adventures and how can people support your work Awesome. Yeah. So Instagram is also, I love that platform just for showcasing and I love doing the stories. So Instagram for that. And then um, girls do ski is other spot. So uh, girls do ski.com. And then we also have an Instagram feed alongside of that. Great. I will link to those in the show notes. 
Well, Leah, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, no problem. Thank you. It was awesome to connect and I look forward to seeing you on the slopes, hopefully. I know. Yeah. We got to figure out when, yeah, (laughs) there's a lot to figure out before then, but yeah. 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 I look forward to that day. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Awesome. Thank you. See ya. Bye. I am resilient. I trust the movement. I negate the chaos. Uplift the negative. I'll show up at the table again and again and again. I'll close my mouth and learn to listen. Special thanks goes to Avery Sandak for all the time he spent editing the audio on today's episode. To Rising Appalachia for generously providing the music for the opening and closing tracks. And to my partner, Rob Lee, for being extra quiet in the house where I'm recording. If you learned something from today's episode, share it with a friend. Until next time.